Welcome everyone to Quality. This is Arjun Venkatesh, your host. And today we're exploring quality and emergency care as part of our Emergency Quality Network Equal Stroke Initiative. I'm excited today because we're joined by Dr. Bruce Lowe, who's Chief of Emergency Medicine at Centara Norfolk Hospital uh, in Virginia. We're also joined by Dr. Corey Zacherson from MGH, who leads the Equal Stroke Initiative along with me. And today we're talking about all things TIA. Uh, we're hoping to get into some of the more controversial or murky topics. We'll talk about what the right imaging studies are. We'll talk about all the different scores that are out there and how well they work. And we'll even talk about discharge pathways for patients with TIA. Uh, I want to kick it off, though, with Bruce. You know, we're really excited to have you today. You're a lead author on the ASAP clinical policy around stroke care. And when we look at that most recent stroke policy, I was actually surprised to not see the term TIA in there. Uh, why is that? Is there just not the science for TIA care? Is it something different? Like, help us understand where we should be looking for the most current recommendations for emergency physicians on TIAs. Yeah, well, first, thank you for inviting me, uh, Corey and Arjun, to the podcast. Uh, but specific to your question, our focus was really on acute stroke. And so we had a stroke policy back in 2016, and it was time to update that. Uh, so it's not that we didn't, uh, there isn't, um, evidence uh, or literature on TIAs, but we actually created a separate TIA clinical policy that was published in 2018. So for this time around, we actually focused on stroke and not TIA. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so one of the other things that we've seen in that time period since those were published uh, is this change in the definition for TIA, going from this sort of time-based definition to more of an imaging-based um, definition. And so I would love your thoughts on whether or how that should also be changing the way that we're thinking about our management or our imaging choices in the emergency department. Yeah, great question. Back in 2009, the AHA actually proposed changing the definition for a TIA, moving away from a purely clinical-based, so symptoms resolved within 24 hours, to a tissue-based definition. So there's no signs of infarct, uh, which is gonna be done by imaging, either CT or MRI. Uh, and they actually don't, they actually propose not giving a specific time frame, but going to more of an image-based uh, diagnosis, uh, as you had mentioned earlier. And so it was interesting because if you look at the older literature, at least, it made it a little bit difficult to say, you know, should we include it? How do you incorporate? Because the definitions uh, were different. And it turns out about a third of all TIAs, if you were to image them, get an MRI, they would actually show an infarct uh, on imaging, even though they had no clinical symptoms. So, you know, what do you do about it? How does it change? Um, it became kind of a very interesting question. I think what we do know is if you do have signs of an acute infarct on imaging, even if you have resolution of symptoms, that is still, a, from a prognostication standpoint, a risk factor for likelihood to get a stroke uh, in the near future. So as part of a kind of decision-making, um, there is some prognostication. And then with some of the recent trials that came out about management of secondary prevention for early stroke or high-risk TIAs, we also know that using dual antiplatelet therapy for these uh, particular patient population may make more sense as opposed to just being on aspirin. So both from a prognostication standpoint, as well as from a management standpoint, uh, I think it makes sense to, moving towards an image-based uh, definition as opposed to the previous clinical-based definition. It's interesting, Bruce, you when you mentioned dual platelet therapy. Um, and the reason is, is, you know, 
we find that practice is really hard to change. And we know this, right? The clinical evidence, its adoption is really slow. There's a million different reasons for that. We're trying to do a lot of things to speed that up. Um, and, you know, there's some similar parallels here between MIs and TIAs. You know, early use of dual antiplatelet therapy is something that was, there was evidence for doing it in and STEMIs and STEMIs, but it really took us getting institutional guidelines, basically order sets and mandating and saying, we're gonna use this every time in order to get adoption of that. What does that look like in the space of TIAs, right? Like what, what, what do you think it's gonna to take to identify the right patients and get them dual antiplatelet therapy in the TIA space? I think that's a great question. And you're right, it changes hard. Um, if you look at the cardiac literature, um, they looked at some of the, the you know, the more recent guidelines uh, over the years, and it took almost 10 years before people were able to change their practice from when the evidence uh, was published. So, yes, it's a very difficult to change the habits. And I think the problem becomes is, especially nowadays, the evidence is coming so rapidly and so quickly, it's hard to keep up to know what you should and shouldn't be doing. And I think you nailed it on the head. It's really about institutional practices and kind of setting that standard. I know back when I first started 20 years ago as an attending, you know, I was asking some of my partners at the time, especially those in the community practice, you know, you know, why do you do what you do? And I was also always kind of interested to hear what their response was. Uh, but as things have rapidly changed, you know, and I would ask them, you know, what are your thoughts on this? It turns out a lot of them say, look, you know, you know, just tell me what to do at the end of the day. And I think that's where having some sort of standardization, now that pretty much everybody's on an electronic medical record uh, or EMR-based system, we have order sets, having some sort of standardized pathway where people can easily get to the information that they need to know, or what we refer to as just in time, I think makes a whole lot of sense. Otherwise, there's just too many things to remember, too many changes, too many nuances to kind of go astray. So having the order sets kind of built into place maybe some handholding along the way with education, having our consultants, you know, being there at least to help us in the beginning until we become more comfortable changing that practice. And in this case, you know, dual antiplatelet therapy. That's great. And I think the point about sort of having guidelines and having protocols in place to help us just guide management is really valuable. It just makes me think of the Raven study that Bernard Chang led out of Columbia, where they show that they could implement this TIA pathway and rapidly discharge patients from the emergency department and um, ensure that they sort of got all of that secondary prevention and follow-up and, you know, um, expertise that they needed. And we've done something similar at MGH. We actually transitioned from using MRI to using CTA and doing vessel imaging. And as long as, you know, that the parent vessel could be cleared um, in consultation with neurology, the patient would be discharged and have rapid outpatient follow-up. But in thinking about what those pathways look like and how different people at different places might be approaching those or developing their own, I wonder what your thoughts are on um, how to be thinking about imaging as part of that and whether, um, you know, with EDs transitioning to CTA, are we losing the ability to diagnose? diagnose that small stroke rather than the TIA? Does every patient that has a potential TIA need the vessel imaging? Like, how should we be thinking about that in our ED context? Yeah, great question. I think it shows that one size doesn't fit all. And what works at maybe at your facility or my facility may not work at everybody else's facility, depending on what resources are available. I think what's interesting is, you know, MRI, even in 2023, remains somewhat of a difficult 
uh, resource to have easily accessible. Now, some EDs have ED-based MRIs, and that's fantastic. Um, but most EDs uh, still have uh, quite a limitation in terms of that resource or that availability to get the MRI stat through their ED. I know in my community sites, for instance, most of our hospitals actually have 24-7 in-house MRI techs. But still, to get an MRI through the ED, you could wait 12 to 24 hours, depending on priorities, you know, who they have on the list and backup and so forth. I think what has become a lot more easily accessible uh, across at least the U.S. is CT and, and specifically CT angiography, as you had managed, as you had mentioned. I think when you think about, you know, what are the absolute critical bits of information that's going to make a difference? And when it comes to TIA, it's really about secondary prevention because their symptoms should have resolved by at that point. Um, I think CT, angi CT angiography. Uh, and looking at vessel imaging is probably the most important, and specifically looking at, you know, looking at carotid stenosis. So if you have significant carotid stenosis, greater than 70%, and you had symptoms that are consistent with the TIA, that's going to change your management and disposition for that patient, uh, as opposed to a patient who have who has no symptoms uh, and then getting an MRI. I think the MRI tends to be kind of a lower yield test, although important, you know, I think there is some debate, you know, do you have to get it right then and there in the emergency department, or can it be obtained, say, within the next two to three days? So I think this is a really good place for discussion because I think historically, when emergency physicians talk about this, when we talk to medical directors in EQUAL who are talking about their local stroke protocols, we often talk about imaging as if it's a resource-based decision and that we're sort of making a blanket decision for everybody. So well, we are going to do CTAs because we don't have MRI. We don't have access to a tech 24-7. Our turnaround times are too long. What I'm hearing from you guys is actually something that's very different, which is much more patient-based and patient-centric. And to say, actually, the preferred test, the critical information is the information we get on the CTA. And so, like, if you were to sort of pretend you had both, right, pretend you work at a place that has 24-7 quick access to turnaround, of MRI and CTA, how would you advise the emergency physician to approach that TIA patient in that setting? Yeah, so that's a that's a dream kind of scenario, and I'll tell you, you know, where I'm at as as the medical director in chief, you know, I, you know, I dream about these scenarios all the time. You know, what would I do? You know, had I won the lottery? Um, so I think you know, if you had absolutely all resources available, yeah, absolutely get the MRI. You know, get get the vessel imaging. You can do an MRA or CTA. Absolutely. But I think the reality is for most facilities, that's usually not an option or not an easy option to, to obtain. Uh, I do think, though, because CT and geography, even when you go to critical rural hospitals, most of those facilities actually do have access to CT and geography. And I think um, from a practical standpoint, CT and geography really makes a lot of sense if you had to choose between one or the other. Now, if all things being equal, you had quick MRI turnaround times and everything else, yeah, I think MRI is great. I think from, a, from a, also another practical standpoint, and this is me wearing my medical director hat and thinking about flow and throughput and, you know, um, not having to take care of patients, you know, in the, in the hallways or in the waiting room, you know, post-COVID, um, you know, from a flow perspective, yeah, I think CT angiography makes a lot of sense just from a, how long it takes to do the CT compared to the MRI. And of course, you have to have, you know, the appropriate radiologist interpreting and so forth. I would love to jump in and just piggyback on that thought. Actually, the place that our protocol came from that changed our use of MRI to our use of CTA was that our neurology group's bonuses became tied to the ED length of stay of their patients. 
And so then all of a sudden they were motivated to sort of have a better strategy for throughput and recognized that in fact, we were not losing anything clinically by doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Like if to ask, ask a patient to be around the ED that much longer, higher cost, everything else, what are you really getting for it? Um, I'll say there's probably a fear that's brewing on some of our listeners' minds around medical legal risk. It always comes up when we're talking about diagnosis of high-risk conditions. And so if, if I just get a CTA on that TIA patient and discharge them, you know, am I really at greater medical legal risk or is that sort of more fear than fact? Yeah, great question. I don't know the answer to that from what's been out there in the medical legal world, but what I will say is this, you know, the standard of care are really based on what that local protocol is and what your local standard suggests. And so I think this is what going tying back to what we just talked about, having discussions with the appropriate stakeholders, having kind of a hospital-based or system-based kind of approach to say, look, we're going to do CTAs for our TIA patients and we'll consider this a standard of care. Um, you know, I think that's how we protect our, our members, you know, by having these protocols in place. Otherwise, you kind of run into the, uh, the problem of, yeah, I do CTA or maybe I do MRI and then there's a bad outcome and then you always get second guess because hindsight's always 2020. So just to follow on that in the, the sort of risk question, because I practice in a place where we have neurology that sits in the emergency department. And so it's like very straightforward to walk over to their desk and, you know, consult them on this patient. But our protocol involves neurology weighing in on every TIA patient that gets a CTA to clear the parent vessel for us. Um, and so I recognize that that is not the case at the vast majority of places. And so if people are doing the CTA elsewhere, is it really the carotids that they should be looking at? Is, is there another way that they should be approaching that sort of clearance step? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the most important for vascular imaging is really the carotids, because if you have a significant carotid stenosis, and you had a TIA, right, you're, you're moving quickly toward getting a credit endorectomy or a carotid stenting, depending on the patient and what resources are available. Uh, and then even though the guidelines suggest can be done within two weeks, I think a lot of places have moved towards kind of fairly urgently getting it done, usually within a couple of days. At least in my health system, we would admit all these people formally uh, to have the procedure done within the next day or two. Um, I think intracranial vessel imaging is an interesting question. Um, obviously, if you have stenosis, uh, that does pretend to a higher risk for a recurrent stroke. Um, but we know that also that medical management is actually first-line therapy and not an interventional procedure like stenting or some sort of uh, endorectomy. Um, so I think most importantly is getting carotid imaging first and foremost. And I think having the intracranial imaging is a nice thing to have and can help for risk stratification for future strokes. But you're probably not going to act on that, you know, immediately in terms of intervention because it's going to be medical management primarily. How do you wrestle with, you know, I think one of the challenges here is this, is we have a specialty in emergency medicine where we're historically built ourselves on the idea of ruling out bad things. And so we, we have his, trained our residents and built much of this around these really binary decisions. Our job in the ED is to rule out a stroke. That is intention with what we feel around things like TIAs, because you can rule out a stroke and do nothing for the future risk modification for that patient. You can also not make a diagnosis, right? Just saying this patient did not have an acute stroke versus there's an emerging, I think, increasing focus in emergency care because we've got access to all the acute technologies 
because of research, because of different tools that we have to say, well, we can not only rule out a stroke, but we could also make that carotid di diagnosis that needs urgent surgery, or we could do the urgent risk stratification that identifies the patient that needs to be on dual antiplatelet therapy. And in many ways, that's really expanding the scope of what you think about our role and our job is in emergency medicine. How do we help folks with that? Because that's different than the job they trained with. And how do we get them comfortable with that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think emergency medicine in general is at a crossroads. You know, just like you said, you know, myself trained and most people, you know, we train just for the hyperacute kind of, or the acute uh, emergency at that time. We either roll in or roll out. And then once you roll it out, we kind of hand them back off to the primary care doctor or somebody else. But, you know, it's not our problem. It's somebody else's problem. But I think what we learn more and more is for a lot of our patients, the emergency department really is the one and only kind of point of contact uh, in terms of healthcare, especially those with social determinants of health, right? They don't have access to follow up, whether they're uninsured or underinsured, uh, or they have other barriers, like they don't have transportation, you know, even if you could set up a follow-up appointment clinic in the next couple of days, right? They can't get there for whatever reason, or they're homeless, they don't have a telephone. Um, and so I think we're at a crossroads in emergency medicine about, you know, how more involved do we get into in terms of, say, secondary prevention? And whether you're talking about treating high blood pressure, diabetes, I mean, these were things that 20 years ago when I joined my group, you know, it was a heck no in terms of, you know, would I ever start somebody on medications uh, for some sort of chronic disease management? Whereas I think nowadays, most people are at least willing to start certain medications or at least have that conversation to approach. Now, we're not experts in, say, diabetes medications. Somebody comes in, they're on two, you know, diabetes medications. Maybe they go on insulin. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of us, myself included, yeah, we're not comfortable there. We, we don't have the training. We really need uh, outside help. But to get to your question specifically, I think that's a crossword. We have to kind of make a determination, you know, if somebody really doesn't have access maybe the right answer is for the patient, um, how do we get them the information uh, or diagnostics that's needed and to start that secondary prevention? Um, so I think more conversation needs to happen, but I think we are heading towards, yes, our scope is expanding in terms of what we do and not just the acute uh, phase of a disease process. I think one of the things that I wanna make sure that listeners leave with is a clear set of, if I were to go and try to put a protocol in place in my shop tomorrow, what do I need to do and what do I need to think about? And recognizing all the things that we've talked about, that resources vary and, you know, um, settings are all very different. If there were some sort of clear bulleted points about what are the things that somebody needs to think about if they want to go, you know, implement something tomorrow. Yeah, great question. I think a couple things off the bat. First, we know you're going to have to have some sort of neuroimaging. MRI is ideal, but as we mentioned before, for most facilities, it's pretty limited in terms of the resource availability. So you're doing a non-contrast head CT. And we all know that, especially when you have symptom resolution, it's probably going to be unremarkable, that non-con head CT. Probably if you're thinking TI at this point and you have a negative head CT, vessel imaging is probably going to be the next most important, uh, at least from a patient-centric standpoint, and getting some sort of carotid imaging. So whether that's CT angiography, if you're going to do ultrasound, that's probably an adequate screening. Uh, although if you have a positive or non-diagnostic ultrasound, you are going to have to go to another step. Uh, so some sort of vascular imaging. 
And at that point, um, I think this is where you have to figure out, do you have available resources for this patient to follow up with either their primary care doctor that they have or some sort of clinic, and they can continue on that pathway. Or um, if you don't have that, uh, especially if a first time TIA, it may be worthwhile to admit them the hospital for kind of the remaining workup, right? Get the MRI of the head, considering in certain cases they may need an echo, looking for a PFO or the cardiomyopathy, looking for clots either in the LV, uh, looking for AFib, or at least the workup to start for uh, paroxysmal AFib as potentially a cause uh, of the stroke. And I think working with the stakeholders kind of point together uh, because different places will have different resources. There are some uh, institutions and in, in, even in the community setting where having a Holter monitor or vent monitor uh, placed from the ED is very feasible. Um, and they can get at least uh, evaluation for a potential AFib if it's not obvious where their stroke is coming from. Um, so these things are possible. It just depends on your resources uh, and your institution and, and what they're willing to put together. You know, the sort of the discussion around here's all the possible causes and you need to consider the admission and discharge round. It reminds me of a recent shift I worked where I had a medical student with me and we had a TIA patient and the medical student calculated an ABCD score. And so it's a little bit of shift of topic here, but I think it's worthy of discussion, which is for a while, you know, we had a couple simple risk scores. The concept of risk stratifications evolved. How do you think emergency physicians should be thinking about it today? What does risk stratification look like? Sort of where do we live with all the different scores out there? Are any of them actually sort of good enough to use for meaningful decision-making or are they just sort of soft prompts? Yeah, great question. I think a lot of us were taught the ABCD or ABCD2 score to use the risk stratify. And at least for a while, if you are quote unquote low risk, you could be followed up as an outpatient. In fact, if you look at the 2009 AHA stroke guidelines or TIA guidelines, they actually specifically talk about if you have a score of two or less, um, uh, you could be discharged home uh, as long as you can get the work up within 48 hours. If not, or you had a score of three or higher, then you were coming into the hospital for your TIA workup. Um, and so I think a lot of people had adopted this strategy of, oh, yeah, if they are low risk by ABCD2 score, yeah, it's safe to send this person home. I think the problem that we faced with and all of us faced with, and even more so now is, oftentimes they have nobody to follow up with, they kind of get lost to, in, the, in the netherworld. When we looked at this from a ASEP clinical policy perspective from TIA in 2018, Actually, it turns out a number of studies show that the ABCD2 score in terms of low risk actually wasn't that low risk. And in fact, our conclusion was we probably shouldn't use the ABCD2 score, especially as a binary go home or get admitted to the hospital because it just didn't perform from a sensitivity analysis standpoint um, good enough to safely discharge people home. Yes, you can use the risk stratify, but of course, what are you going to do with that information? There are other variants that are out there and they oftentimes incorporate imaging uh, along with it. Um, like vascular imaging, like carotid imaging or MRI. Uh, but then it kind of gets to the whole point of, yeah, we're doing the whole TIA workup. Interestingly, the Canadian TIA uh, risk score came out um, uh, some while ago, and then the validation study came out in 2021. Um, it is interesting. Um, I think there is maybe some utility in that uh, aspect. But if you actually look at the scoring, and they define a low risk on their score of three or less, if you have a first-time TIA, you actually score two points. And you can imagine it doesn't take much to get you over the hump uh, into the higher risk stratification. So um, it's interesting. There may be some risk scores out there like the Canadian, but I think the current risk scores that we have, like A, B, C, D, Q score, um, really isn't sufficient. Interesting, the European guidelines actually don't recommend uh, the use of A, B, C, D, Q score. 
uh, anymore. And then the AHA actually doesn't make any reference in their updated TIA guidelines in regards to the use of ABCD2 scores. So if the scores aren't performing well enough to sort of make that go, no go decision on admit discharge, where should people look? Is it sort of make a local protocol, figure out what workup you can get done in the ED and basically say that, you know, once I've got a negative CTA, once I've got a normal EKG, once I've got a patient in certain maybe age and comorbidity range, that's the profile of the patient that gets discharged in these discharge pathways. Exactly. And I think that makes the most sense. Uh, it prevents variability. I think as we talked about the risk um, from a med mal or even just from a hospital kind of quality standpoint, right? We don't want to get tagged or you never want to hear from your partner. Hey, remember that patient you saw the other day, right? That's the one that gives us all heart palpitations. Um, and we want to make sure that we don't want to get that. So I think having some sort of set protocol, I think especially for first time TIAs or what you suspect is a TIA, if it's the first time they haven't had uh, vascular imaging or a workup, I think those are the ones that we really want to focus on first, right? What is really needed in the ED uh, versus outpatient? If you can't get it done as an outpatient, right, maybe you can put them in a short stay unit or observation status upstairs to get those studies done. I think what gets even more harder uh, or more complicated is what happens if it's a recurrent TIA. Um, you know, how do you manage that? You know, when is the previous imaging good enough or when do you have to re-image these people? And I think that's where the literature really, uh, as of right now, it's it's pretty vacant and, and not clear cut about how to answer those questions. We're kind of the same place we were for cardiac, for chest pain, say 10, 15 years ago. And it really hasn't been until recently where guidelines have come out and say, hey, if you had a negative stress test and you're not thinking this is a, a true cardiac ACS picture, right? Don't test them again, send them home. Or if you have a clean coronary CTA, right? You're going to be a two-year warranty, at least based on the recent 2021 chest pain guidelines. So I don't think we're quite there yet for TIA and stroke, but I think we're heading that direction, but more kind of evidence and research is needed to help delineate some of these questions and some of these scenarios as we talked about. Bruce, this has been so helpful. I've learned so much today. And so, you know, one of the things I always give every one of our guests here on Quality of Trends to do is, you know, take the soapbox. I know you're an expert. You've probably seen a bunch of emergency physicians make you know, great decisions as well as mistakes when it comes to the care of patients with TIA. And so if there's any one last parting thought you wanted to share with our listeners, uh, the floor is yours. Great. Well, it's great being here. I enjoy uh, the conversation that we had. I think to answer your question, what I would say is um, really think about, especially the first time TIA, um, that's really the opportunity for us to really implement uh, secondary prevention measures or diagnostics that can prevent future strokes, especially talking about uh, vascular imaging, worry about the carotids, in certain cases, you know, uh, echo, uh, as well as potential Holter monitoring for, for AFib. Um, so really kind of think about the first time TIAs and think about um, how we're going to manage that. I think having some sort of standardized protocol for your health system that makes sense for your shop, especially based on resources that are available. Um, and also think about too, from a secondary prevention, you know, how can we evolve our practice uh, to help again, from a patient-centric outcome, reduce their risk of stroke in the future. And that also may include not just starting on aspirin, but in some cases, dual antiplatelet therapy. And I think if we think about those things to start off with, uh, I think it really can help improve the outcomes for our patients. Thanks, it's really helpful. You know, I, as I'm sort of reflecting on today, I think there are some really key learning points for our listeners. You know, our job in emergency medicine is not just to rule out stroke. 
It's to also make diagnoses. And that may mean that we need to really rethink how we think about vessel imaging. So it's not just, can you get an MRI done? But it's more importantly, is did we do the vessel imaging to potentially diagnose those who have something we can intervene on? And did we diagnose those who are at high risk of a bad outcome that may need dual antiplatelet therapy or other prevention? And that really is, as we sort of said before, helping us think about emergency care, not just in the moment of that few minutes that somebody's in the ED, but really changing their health trajectory and improving the lives of many patients uh, all over this country. So thank you for joining us today. This was a wonderful session and uh, we'll look forward to having you back in the future. I know you're an expert on things even beyond TIA. And so I'm sure we'll have you again in our series. Thanks. Great, thank you.